Heavenly Father, thank you that we can be together. Thank you for the opportunity of us learning more about you and perhaps even, Lord, more about ourselves, but most importantly, about our relationship with you and what you require of us as we seek to follow you in this world. Bless Josh and his preaching at Sunnybank and Heavenly Father, take my words and my preparation and use it for your purposes. To the honour and glory of Jesus, we pray. And everybody said, Amen. How do I use this? Uh, just by the arrows? Difficult providences. By way of introduction, like I said, Paul's last journey. Um, as we look at this and we take it literally and historically, there's also an underlying spiritual application for us to be making. Um, Paul's whole life, in fact, seems to have been one that was very stormy. If you read 2 Corinthians 11, you'll get an insight into the sort of things that he put up with. And he talks about once being at sea for a day and a half. That's not this occasion. But he does talk about, a, in that same paragraph, about another time when he was at sea. Um, if you're interested in becoming a follower of the Lord Jesus, you should read that chapter and then you think about all of the fun that Paul had and you can have that amount of fun as well. Like Paul, we also have not smooth lives, do we? But ups and downs and storms and things like that happening to us. We have our trials and our tough times. So, as I said, um, let's focus upon what this teaches us about God and what it teaches us about ourselves and our relationship together. For the Apostle Paul, he has been in Caesarea for the last two years. Caesarea is on the coast, you'll see in a minute. Um, and he's been under arrest... And he has an intention, both God-given and also from within himself, a heart's desire to go to Rome. And in the process of that being worked out, the pace has just slowed down in the book of Acts. When you get into the 20s, he's under arrest and you would think he would be sent on his way speedily. He appeals to Caesar, but it takes years because the guy in charge, Felix, is waiting for a bribe. You pay for it, then I'll let you go. Then Felix is replaced by Festus, and when Festus hears Paul's story, he thinks this guy is not guilty of anything worthy of death or punishment. Festus, uh, Felix, rather, checks, Festus checks that with Agrippa, and Agrippa makes exactly the same comment. At the end of chapter 26, Agrippa says to Festus, this man could have been released if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. As soon as Paul said, I appeal to Caesar, it's automatic. They could do nothing else about it, except they're in a bit of a quandary because if you send a prisoner or a convict to Rome to appeal to Caesar, a Roman citizen, then there's got to be a charge. There's got to be a very good reason why you're sending him. Well, Festus and Felix are struggling to find what that very good reason is. But nonetheless, they've sent him on the way. And so, at last the day has arrived and Paul... It was decided that, notice the word we, you'll get we and us a lot of the times through this chapter, and by now you would realise that that's also referring to the author, Luke. So he writes about we, Paul, and me. But there are others with him as well. Um, we're, we're going to go to, uh, to Italy. They handed Paul over and some other prisoners to a Roman centurion whose name was Julius. Julius turns out to be a good guy, as indeed in the New Testament many centurions were. Um, they were very carefully chosen and the Rome did a pretty good job. These men were in charge of a hundred 
other soldiers under them. And from the New Testament perspective, many of them were good and solid leaders and fair men. Uh, and Julius certainly is impressed with Paul, partly because he's not alone. They boarded a ship, they're going to Adramidium, which is, I'll show you on the map in a moment, way up north and around the coast. That's not where they want to go, they want to go to Rome. But they've got to get on a ship to find another ship to take them to Rome. Um, so they put out to sea and they just head straight up the coast of Israel, straight up to Sidon. Um, a guy by the name of Aristarchus, whom I always call Harry, <laughs> Harry Starkus. And Macedonia Thessalonica was with us. You can look up his name. He appears three or four times in the New Testament. He's a great friend and a co-laborer with the Apostle Paul. He's in prison with him, uh, either as his servant or as a fellow prisoner. He's in Colossians, he's in Philemon, he's a great co-worker, co-laborer. He's just a great assistant. Now, because Harry and Luke are with Paul, it's possible that Julius the centurion thinks that they're his slaves, in which case Paul is a person of rather significant, he's a Roman citizen, and he's got two slaves. And so Julius ends up being very impressed and allows some weird leeway for Paul. He probably is also aware that the charges against Paul are rather weak, that he's an innocent man. So he may have been a little bit more lenient than he would have been otherwise. Verse 3, I'll come back to that. In verse 3, it says, the next day we put in at Sidon, halfway up the coast, uh, a day's journey, and Julius treated Paul kindly, allowed him to go to his friends in Sidon, get off the ship, go and visit the Christians in Sidon uh, while they're unloading the ship or whatever they're doing, loading and unloading the ship and so on. I'm pretty sure he didn't let Paul go by himself. He would have sent a guard with him. But notice in the providence of God how God sometimes works in our world. Paul is the persecutor, and the Christians that he had been persecuting and who had scattered, some of them ended up in Sidon. Now, Paul the persecutor turns up and they're friends. We never know what God's going to do, do you? How God's going to use you, even through the bad things of life, God has the ability to work all things together for good. That's just an aside. Um, there was a preacher and he came up with four points, which I'll give you as we go through this, but it's a way to remember this story. The first point is, the day comes when the centurion says, all aboard, got to get on the ship. The other ones are going to be all change, because they've got to change ships. Um, it's all over, the storm has come. And the last one is, it's all right. I'll give you those again at the end. and you can, There'll be a test at morning tea. I haven't come to the map yet. When do you put out to sea? So they get back on the boat and they head north again, still going up to Antioch, and then they'll go across, or from your perspective, they're going up the coast and they're going to go across under Asia, Pamphylia and Cilicia and so on. Uh, when we put out to sea from there, we sailed along the northern coast of Cyprus because the winds were against us. The time of the year, it tells us later on, it referred to the fast. In AD 59, which is this year, it was October the 5th. By the time we got to September... There wasn't a lot of, uh, there was no cruising, but a lot of ship travel started to really wind down because the winds were very strong at that time of the year. By mid-November, hardly any sailing on the Mediterranean at all um, because it was so dangerous. This is now about mid-October. 
So they're taking a risk, and so they really do want to get Paul to Rome, and again, in the providence of God. Uh, oh, can you see that? So they've travelled up here, left Caesarea, gone up the side, up and around, and they're going to come to Myra, which is there, if I point to it now, and that's where they're going to change ships. And then they want to head to Rome, which is up here. But you can see the direction they're going to get blown by the winds which are coming down the northeasterly direction. I'll come back to the map. After sailing through the open sea off Cilicia and Pamphylia, that's across the top there, uh, we reached Myra in Lycia. Yep, I just get it going. Then the centurion found an Alexandrian ship. Now here's the point. The ship they were on wasn't going to Rome. The ship they were on is going to Adramidium. That's up. Can you see the word Asia? Yep. It's not on there. It's supposed to be on there. Is it? Can you see it? I can't see it. It's not there. It's supposed to be there. Oh, listen to you. <laughs> anyway, that's where they were. That's where that ship's going. So they changed at Myra and they then head off and they're wanting to go to Rome. You can see them still heading in that direction, but then the wind's going to catch them coming down the Aegean Sea. He found an Alexandrian ship. Egypt was the breadbasket for Rome. And so, as I said, there were no cruise ships going, but there were often cargo ships travelling across the Mediterranean, carrying cargo to the capital city of Rome. And in fact, even in the months of November, December, January, those dangerous months, we have records where the emperor would be paying extra money for these cargo ships to bring food to Rome. So it was risky, but necessary. So they found an Alexandrian ship, a, a very large ship, uh, and it was going to Italy, and so he swaps boats. He takes the prisoners off the little ship that he was on and puts them on this, now this big cruiser. And it's a very big one. Um, we, have, we know that the size of some of these ships can carry up to 500 passengers, plus cargo, and this ship has got a lot of wheat on board. All aboard, so now it's all change. We've changed ships and we're heading for Rome. Sailing slowly for many days, slowly because it's into the wind. With difficulty, we arrived at Nidus. So, just off Nidus. So they can't get in. They wanted to go in, but the wind is blowing too hard. And so since the wind wouldn't allow us to approach it, we sailed along the coast of Crete off Salmoni. So they're heading south now. With still more difficulty, we sailed along the coast and we came to a place called Fair Havens, which is underneath Crete, near the city of Lycia. So this has probably taken up till now several weeks. They talk about difficulty and slowness of trips. And we're going to be told how many days since they got on the ship at Myra till the end of the text. It's going to be another couple of weeks' journey. Fair Havens is a very small little harbour. It was safe from the wind, but it was a boring little place to stop. Paul wanted to stop there, but there there's a lot of sailors on board and there was nothing for them to do to winter there. They would be there for three months at least. And so... Um, let me read you the text. I didn't want to put everything up. But how much time had passed and the voyage was already dangerous since the day of atonement or the fast was already over, Paul gave this advice. He basically said, I see these voyages headed towards disaster and heavy loss, not only of the cargo, but of the ship 
and also of our lives. He's not saying that by divine revelation. He's simply sharing that out of his own worldly wisdom, his observation. Paul travelled over 3,000 miles on sea in his 30 years of being a missionary. He had a lot of experience of it and some mishaps. And so he's speaking out of that experience. But the centurion paid no attention to him. He'd rather pay attention to the captain and to the owner of the ship who's on board. The owner of the ship is on board, um, rather than what Paul said. Since the harbour was unsuitable to winter in, it was too small, not entertaining enough, the majority decided, so all of the soldiers, the majority of them decided to set sail, hoping somehow to reach Phoenix. Who can want to go to Phoenix? A harbour on Crete facing the southwest and northwest and to winter there. They're going around the island. I wonder if I've got a map. I do. They're going around the island of Crete and they're heading for Phoenix, which is just there. That's where they're wanting to go. But you can see by the line, they don't get there. Um, oh, so verse 13, when a gentle south wind sprang up, they thought they had achieved their purpose. They weighed anchor and they sailed off to Crete. So they make a decision, we're going to Phoenix. So it begins well, it's a nice sunny day, it's a gentle breeze, but then suddenly, before long, a fierce wind called the North Easter rushed down from the island. It's a typhoon. It's a ship buster type wind. It's going to destroy it. Since the ship was caught, they couldn't sail into it, they couldn't tack into it, they had to just let the ship go with the wind unable to head into it, and so we gave way to it and were driven along by it. Now we're being blown and blown way off course of where we wanted to go. Verses 16 to 20. After running under the shelter of the island, of uh, the island, we came to that little thing on the end called quarter, were barely able to get control of the skiff. And then they do several things. This is now an emergency, and they, they do some things that sort of decrease the damage. They had a little dinghy dragging at the back like a little lifeboat. They dragged that on board. Otherwise, it's going to get filled with water and cause other sorts of damage. So they hoisted that up. Second thing they did is they tried ropes around the ship to try and hold it together. And from end to end, they tied it together. Got a bit of a log in the middle and you tighten it. You tighten it so that the ship is like being held together because it's being tossed and tipped and buffeted by the winds. Um, on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And verse 20 tells us, and for many days, the sun nor stars appeared, did not appear. Uh, and a severe storm kept raging. Finally, all hope of being saved was lost. Steps taken to save the ship, I just did that. Oh. All hope was fading that we would be saved. All aboard, all change, it's all over. This is disastrous. It's all over. Storms God allows in our lives um, for good purposes, that he is achieving his purposes through it. Storms, storms change our values. Things that we once thought were important, that certainly even the owner of the ship and the captain of this ship are deciding we've got to jettison some of this stuff for the sake of our own lives. You change values. There was a lady on board the Titanic. From memory, her name was um, Mrs. Brown. Now, if I've got the story right in my memory, then she's on lifeboat 14. 
which is one of the only few lifeboats that came back to save other survivors out of the water. Many of them went to the distance so that they couldn't be dragged under by those in the water. Mrs Brown, who was a very wealthy lady, when she was in the lifeboat, before it was lowered into the water, got out of the lifeboat and rang back to her cabin. And everybody in the lifeboat thought, oh, she's going to get a jewellery. She's going to get her very valuable possessions. When she comes back, she's got a, a brown paper bag full of oranges. She's left the jewellery. She's left everything behind. Storms have a way of changing our values. That's what happens to us. When we get into a crisis, when God allows a storm into our life, then often he's wanting to get our attention about something. And so for these guys... That's what they're experiencing and that's one of the applications we can have for ourselves. The promises of God do not alleviate the challenges and the experiences of life. Christina Rossetti, you may have heard of, Christian poet, was. She wrote this. God has not promised skies always blue, flowers, flowers strewn pathways all our life through. God has not promised skies without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. But God has promised strength for the day, rest for the labour, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy and undying love. Storms have a way of changing our values. If you're in a storm at the moment in your life, be it mental or financial or relational or whatever, occupational, spiritual, God's trying to get your attention and perhaps to change something, of change your priorities, to change your values. Storms also have a way of bringing us back to the basics, returning us to our spiritual disciplines or the things that we've been neglecting. That comes out in what the Apostle Paul says. Since they'd been without food for a long, long time, the Apostle Paul encourages them, men, you haven't eaten, it's time for us to uh, step up and eat something. So he does that. Now I urge you, there will not be any loss of lives here today. He's speaking to them. Last night, uh, the angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood by me. So he's had a visit, an angel, an angelic visit has come to him and has said to him, um, don't be afraid, Paul. It's necessary for you to appear before Caesar. You're going to make it to Rome. Um, and indeed, God has graciously given you all of those who are sailing with you. Paul, you'll, you'll make it through this storm. Uh, but so will everybody else on board the ship, all 276. So take courage, uh, everyone. Uh, I believe God, it'll be just like he says. Amen. That's our response, what should be our response. Um, but we have to run aground on some island, to which the owner of the ship said, pardon? Do you notice these words that the Apostle Paul said? An angel appeared to me. What kept Paul so calm, so focused? Why isn't he panicking? Why isn't he feeling a loss of hope? Well, because God had said to him way back in Acts chapter 18 and said it again in Acts 23, you're going to appear in Rome. So he already knew God was going to get him there. He thought he was going to go there as a missionary. He's now going there as a prisoner. Uh, but either way, he's going to be there. And he says, the angel of, of the God to whom I belong, I belong to God. This is what kept Paul stable. I serve him or I worship him in the ESV and I trust him. If God said it, I believe it, sells it. 
Storms have a way of returning us to the basics. We belong to him. He's with us in this. He's in control. May not seem it, but he is. And he requires us to trust him. So from all aboard, all change, all over to, it's all right. It's going to work out. God is with us in this. When the 14th night came, now most commentators think it's difficult, you can have a different interpretation. They think the 14th night is not for the whole trip. That's from Myra when they got on the Alexandrian ship. You could also argue it's going to be okay on the 14th night. It didn't happen straight away. God allowed this thing to go on for quite a while. We're drifting on the Adriatic Sea and about midnight, sailors thought they were approaching land, so what do you do at sea? They can't see. They don't have a compass or any other radar equipment. They're driven by sight. But verse 20 tells us the sun and the stars had not appeared. They're drifting. They've lost their way. They don't know where they are. Then suddenly they either hear something or there's a sense that we're getting shallower and shallower. So they take some soundings um, and sure enough, it's 120 feet down and then it's 90 feet down. So they're approaching land. They know that. So they throw over four anchors to sort of slow them down and to steady them and to stop them drifting because of the wind blowing them away from the island. And then the soldiers remember, oh, we've got a ship, we've got a lifeboat. So not the soldiers, the crew. So the crew go and get the little lifeboat and they say, we're just going to uh, check the anchors uh, down below. And so they're lowering the lifeboat. Paul watches them and he knows that these crew members are escaping. He says to the centurion, God said that we'll all be safe but we have to stay on the ship. If you do what God says, you'll be safe. You try to save yourself, you won't be. So when the soldiers heard that, they cut the ropes of the ship that they're lowering down, bang, 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 now they're stuck on board. And sure enough, um, Paul tells them, let's eat something. So they're now drifting, they're trying to stop themselves. Daylight comes, so now they can see. When daylight comes, they didn't recognise the land, it's Malta, um, but they saw a bay, a little beautiful horseshoe-shaped uh, bay. It's a mouthful. <laughs> Got two little islands on the end of it, so it's, it's still there today. Um, and they saw the bay, and they could see the beach, and they thought, we can make that. So they cut the anchors, they hoist the sail, thinking the wind will blow us straight onto the beach. But God said... All lives will be saved, but the ship will run aground. It'll be destroyed. So they're trying to do, I guess, the right thing, but God had said, not going to happen. After cutting loose the anchors, they put up the sails and they go sailing in and they, they struck a sandbar and they ran the ship aground. They jammed it in so tight, the front's locked in and the stern of it, the bow of it is being pounded by the waves and is starting to break up. So now panic sets in. What are we going to do? We're in the water, far from the beach. The wind is blowing. There's waves coming. They're in a great deal of difficulty. Some of them can swim. Probably many of them couldn't. The soldiers came up with a brilliant idea. Let's kill all the prisoners. Because if a prisoner escaped, the Roman soldiers took their place. That was their plan. The centurion had a better plan because he wanted to save Paul. He said, which of you Roman soldiers can swim? 
Those of you who can swim, swim ashore. When you get there, wait for the prisoners who are going to come. So that's what he did. And then he said, the rest of us will come, we'll grab a board or we'll grab some driftwood or we'll grab something and we'll float in. This would be the first reference, I think, biblically to surfing in... (laughs) I'm not sure, but I think it might be there. Um, For those of you who love the ocean and love surfing, uh, you need to read the book of Revelation, chapter 21. There's a new heaven, there's a new earth, and there is no ocean. So if you're going to do it, you've got to do it now, okay? The rest were to follow, this is the very last verse, some on planks and some on debris from the ship. In this way, everyone reached land and was safe, just like God said. God works his purposes out in his own time. They're there for weeks and weeks and weeks. And for a fortnight, they didn't eat. They were too seasick, too worried, too anxious. So Paul had to even encourage them to do that. And I jumped over it, but when he does that, he actually stops and he prays. He says grace in front of them all. As you read it through, Paul has, moved from, Paul has been increasingly respected by those on the ship. And Luke doesn't tell us this, but I would imagine some of those soldiers, some of the crew, some of the prisoners would be saying, who is the God this guy believes in? Let's find out more about him. God using him, even in the midst of this. Some of those prisoners would end up being gladiators, by the way. They were heading for death. Hmm. All aboard? All change? All over? All right. Where are you in that? Is God asking you to get on board with something? Is he leading you somewhere? Is there something happening? And if so, then don't be surprised at some point if there's a change that you don't anticipate. And they might even turn for bad, you know, and you think, yeah, it's all over. This is a bad decision. I made the wrong thing. But if God led you, then God is with you. Hang on to him. Trust him. You belong to him. Serve him. Trust him. I can be in the will of God and be in a storm. Some people think that if bad things are happening in my life, it's because I am out of the will of God. That's not always the case. It can be the case. Jonah was in a mess of trouble because he was disobedient. But Paul is fully obedient. God is not punishing him. This is just one of those things that happens in this world and that God uses in this fallen world. So be encouraged by that. You should always ask the question, if you're in difficulties, if you're sick, if something has gone wrong, Lord, is there something you're trying to tell me? Is there something I've got to put right? But don't draw the conclusion automatically. Bad things happen because you're out of the will of God. God uses storms to change our values and priorities. Get your attention. Fix your life up. It's because he loves us. He just doesn't abandon us. God uses storms to bring us back to the basics. Trust him, believe in him, obey him. When God speaks, we're safe. And what God says will happen. That's positive. That's encouraging if you're a believer. That's frightening if you're not. What God says will happen. There is a day of judgment. There is a day of accountability. And what he says will happen. So, here is the test. All aboard, all change, all over, all right. The end. (laughs) Let's pray. 
Thanks, Heavenly Father, for this story, part of your word, and for the lessons that it contains. Lord, continue to grow us as we follow the Lord Jesus, to trust you, whether times are good and the sun is shining and the band is playing, or whether there's a storm and we're despairing and we're worried. Help us like Paul. We belong to you. We're serving you. We're obeying you. Lord, we're trusting you. May your will be done in each of our lives, I pray, in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless everyone.